Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Pushkin. Hey, it's Jacob Goldstein, and this is the feed where you normally hear what's your problem. But today we're playing a preview from another podcast. The show is called Slate Money. It's made by Slate, and it's about, wait for it, money. Every week... Felix Salmon and Emily Peck of Axios and Slate Paydirt columnist Elizabeth Spires chat about things like Bitcoin and the possible sale of Twitter and the standoff between Disney and the state of Florida. Also, they interview smart, interesting people. In the episode you're about to hear, Felix and Emily sit down with Alexandra Roberts, a law professor who is an expert in trademarks, truly an underrated subject, trademarks. On the show, they talk about everything from counterfeits to parodies to the story of what happened when MasterCard tried to change its logo. Okay, here is the preview of Slate Money. Hello! Welcome to the IP Lasagna episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. And Emily, how excited are you about this week's show? I am so excited. It's all coming back to me. Everything I thought I forgot about IP, I remembered. (laughs) We have the one and only Alexandra Roberts, aka Lex Lanham on Twitter. Alex, introduce yourself. Who are you? I am an intellectual property and trademark law professor at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. You are everyone's favorite IP expert. You are going to talk to us about so many amazing bits and pieces of trademarks. We're going to talk about social media. We're going to talk about rights of publicity. We're going to talk about brands. We're going to talk about counterfeits. We're going to talk about parodies. We're going to talk about mischief. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment about 
Felix the Cat and whether I can use it as my Twitter avatar. It's so much fun. Honestly, this is the best show about IP law you will listen to all month. I can guarantee it. It's all coming up on Slate Money. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, my kids, so far. Uh, To-do lists. Uh, this month, my sugar snap peas. I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash problem. Go to shopify.com slash problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry, Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. The automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat well, you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. The one thing that Emily loves more than anything else on this show is when I remind everyone that she used to work at IP Law and Business Magazine. She used to yes. run it, indeed. I was the executive so, editor. So this is your show, Emily. You're, you're, I'm turning the reins over to you for this one. So mad at you. Okay. <laughs> well, yes. I was on the intellectual property beat from 2001 to 2006. And then I really dropped off. I was doing the reading, preparing for this episode, and I remembered a trademark conference I went to in Toronto. And then I was like, what even was a trademark conference? Like I couldn't 
conceive of how that was anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's really my favorite, actually. I can't think of anything more fun than the trade really? conference. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. People go crazy. Those IP lawyers. So, Alex, Alex you, you sent us a thing on um, – you, you gave us some, like, reading because you're a good university professor. One of the pieces of reading you sent us included the sentence, the Ninth Circuit cited hot diggity dog in support of its decision. And now I just love IP law because it's, like, one of my favorite sentences of all time. The main reason I love IP law is because I follow you on Twitter. You're a must-follow on Twitter. You're – at Lex Lanham, which is what? Reading the Lanham Act? Is that what it means? Tell us what the Lanham Act is. Sure. The Lanham Act is the Federal Trademark Act, and it covers trademark registration and trademark infringement and dilution and even false advertising, passing off, things like that. So everything that I study is in this federal statute. Is it huge? No, it's not huge at all. But it's this like one one relatively not huge act, which has spawned an entire industry, basically. Exactly. So you get many hundreds or thousands of cases applying and interpreting it. And people get a con- trademark confused with copyright, but trademark and copyright are not the same. As that is Alex correct. Explain to us. <laughs> and I think this is a distinction people often mess up. Sure. Okay. Um, so trademarks are brand names. They protect the use of a name or a logo or trade dress or something like that in connection with the sale of um, goods or services in commerce, right? Copyright is something that protects expressive works. So original works of authorship fixed in a tangible medium. So if you're thinking about, you know, a painting, a film, a television show, the actual content of it, then you're thinking about copyright. And if you're thinking about the brand name or the logo or something like that, then you're thinking about trademark law. They are not synonymous and they are not at all interchangeable, although um, often they intersect. And right of publicity is like another thing entirely, which is neither of those two things? That's right. Um, Right of publicity is a way to protect the use of somebody's name, image, or likeness, um, the, the commercial use, right? So if you're a celebrity or even if you're a regular person and your face gets used in an advertisement or your name gets used or something like that, um, then you might have a right of publicity cause of action. That's actually covered by state law. So almost every state has either a statute, not almost every, but more than half of states have um, either a statute or common law protection or both for right of publicity. But if someone if someone put my photograph in a ad on Twitter, say, and started using it to sell cat food, then I could probably sue that person in many states. Absolutely. And that's going to be a place also where a couple of these things intersect and overlap, right? Because you might have a right of publicity claim based on the use of your image in connection with commercial advertising. And you might also have a copyright claim or the owner of the photo that they're using might have a copyright claim. And what's interesting to me about the difference between trademark and copyright, or one of the interesting things, is that trademarks are forever if you keep using them and you keep them alive. You have to kind of like tend to it like a little fire, but then it could be it could be a flame in perpetuity, whereas the copyright, you have it. You don't have to tend to it. It's yours, but ultimately it will expire, although the, the time it takes to expire is past your lifetime and keeps getting extended by big corporations. 
<laughs> That's right. Um, and then right of publicity, it depends on the state. So some state protections extend past death. Some states have posthumous protection for like 100 years. Some have it for more like 20 years. And some states say, no, this is something that you can protect while you're alive. And when you're dead, others can go ahead and, and use your name or image. Yeah, we were just we were just talking on Twitter about this, where the Frida Kahlo, who is dead, has a right to publicity. And it looks like she doesn't in Mexico, but she does in California. And her photograph was being used by our, our favorite alternative investment platform, Masterworks, in one of their ads on Twitter. And I'm like, are they allowed to do this? And it kind of seemed like probably not, but they were doing it anyway. Um, but this is something which is big on Twitter. Like Twitter is just the world's biggest trademark and copyright infringement machine. Like everything you see on Twitter is like people are tweeting out photographs that they don't have rights to. They're using trademarks they don't have rights to. And that seems to be fine. Like, is that ha damaging anyone? It, it kind of depends who's the speaker, who's the user, right? So a lot of the kinds of uses that you're thinking about are going to be fair uses. We have fair use doctrines in all three of those areas. Um, and when you are just a regular person with a regular sized following, um, you can always reference trademarks, for example. That's always going to be a fair use to say, I got new Nike shoes. I'm so excited about them, stuff like that. I think there's some interesting copyright questions around fair use when we see use on social media, whether something is transformative, what you're kind of adding to it. But the rules are very different when you are a commercial entity and what when what you're doing looks more like advertising. Or when it's like specifically an ad, a promoted tweet, then presumably the bar is much lower, I guess, higher. I can't, I'm not quite sure which way around it would be, but but you're, you're much more likely to be infringing that way because that is a an explicitly commercial activity that you're engaging in. That's right. But if you are a brand with millions of followers, whether you label something an ad and whether it gets becomes a promoted tweet or whether you just kind of push it out to your millions of followers, I don't think makes a huge difference on a from an infringement perspective. I thought there was an interesting case of where this was blurry recently. Um, the comedian Leslie Jones, she tweets out like videos of herself watching the Olympics. And she did it during the election watching Steve Kornacki. <laughs> and it, it's always hilarious and funny. Um, and I guess she was doing this with the Olympics and NBC was upset about it and, and told her to stop, which I thought was just, I mean, I guess it's their right to tell her to stop, but was dumb because she is <laughs> making the Olympics interesting, which NBC would benefit, only benefit from. So that seemed like, like, it seems like a lot of the time, the issues that arise are because companies are overly protective of their IP, IP and their brands. And sometimes they overstep the protection where it could be to their benefit. Yeah, I have a question about that, which is uh, when when this kind of thing happens and you see like the New York Times do it a lot when people like quote New York Times headlines and stuff, there's something which you hear, which is basically it's not you. We don't particularly mind you doing this. But if we just allowed people to do this, then that would set a precedent. And then if someone did something that actually did damage us or that we didn't want them to do, it would be harder for us to enforce it. Is that true? That's not particularly true, at least from a trademark perspective. So the, the kind of duty to police gets really overblown when companies make that argument. You know, we have to enforce this consistently or else we'll lose it. We won't be able to enforce it. 
that is typically a justification for unnecessary over-enforcement or bullying. So you don't lose trademark rights unless you really have stepped away and are doing absolutely nothing to control use by licensees or to police lots of really infringing, harmful uses. What about like uh, trademarks like Kleenex or Google or Xerox, things that become like generic in the in the language. Like what can a company do about that? Do they still have their trademark right? Yeah. So what matters with genericide is really what consumers understand. And it's not how consumers use the term. So we could survey a bunch of people and they could all say, yeah, I use Kleenex, but what but I know it to be a brand. I use Kleenex to refer to puffs or any brand of tissues that I'm using, but I know that Kleenex is a trademark and it, um, when it's used, it means that the product comes from one particular company. So we wouldn't have genericide in a case like that. Um, what companies do when they're concerned about losing their marks to genericide is they'll kind of do like a campaign to raise awareness, which can feel really silly, right? So um, we've seen Xerox do these and Nintendo and Tater Tots and all kinds of brands have like taken out colorful ads saying, hey, we just want to remind you, we are the only company that can make Tater Tots or that can make Kleenex. And I think sometimes to consumers that feels like, oh, are you policing my language and telling me what to say? But what they're really focused on is we just need you to have that information. We need you to be aware that not all tissues are Kleenex. And as long as we can get that, we can probably hang on to our mark. And that came up in the Google case too, right? Everybody uses Google as a verb, as a noun, as an adjective in every way to mean I looked something up on the internet. But if you ask them, they're like, no, no, Google is a brand. I know. Yeah. So it's both desirable and undesirable kind of thing to happen to but, a brand. But, but also like, is this part of the the jurisprudence that like, if people stop knowing that it's a company and a trademark, like the judge will go out and sort of take an opinion poll basically and say, do you know this? And then if the, if people go, no, nope, I, I didn't know that, then the trademark is lost. Like what's a good example of actual genericide where, where something became so much a part of the language that it stopped being a trademark? Murphy bed, uh, singer oh, sewing nice. machines. Yeah. Shredded wheat. So mm. things that were once marks that no longer function as marks because people use them as like a whole category term. Which again, like you kind of want as a brand, <laughs> as a marketer, like nothing better than like everyone saying, oh, go Google it. Like that's desirable, right? It shows you've saturated the market. You are the name of the thing you make. That's that's not bad. Right, but it's risky, Right. So um, there was a recent case over Comic-Con that was kind of a close call. One we've talked about in my class is Popsicle. So you see Popsicle using like original brand Popsicle. A lot of these marks are right on the margin and we're not going to have cases about them because they don't want to enforce in a way that gets another party to say, actually, your registration should be canceled because your mark has become generic. We're going to prove it with survey data. So those <laughs> mark owners really have to proceed with caution. So is this also why so many brands slap that little TM symbol all over everything? Is that part of just reminding people that their brand is a trademark or is there some other reason to do that? Yeah. So the circle R is what you use when you have a registration. And that does, I mean, I think consumers, a lot of consumers know what that means. So that helps send that message. This is a trademark, right? The TM actually just about anybody can use. And it signals like, we think this is our trademark and we're working on getting, making it our trademark and conditioning consumers to understand that this is a source indicator for our brand. So the TM is a little bit less meaningful. 
but but the but both of them serve like in terms of the utility the reason why they appear everywhere is precisely just to protect against genericide there's no other reason to do it to protect against use by others so if a competitor sees something on packaging and says hey that's a great descriptive term for our product and we use that too looks like we can't because this company is using it as a trademark and not just as a descriptive phrase my my favorite example of this was when mastercard decided to change its logo it used to be an orange circle and the yellow circle overlapping them with and it said mastercard underneath it and then they they decided that this was so universally recognizable they didn't need to use the word mastercard anymore and they would just have two circles and it'd be this beautiful clean perfect simple logo and then it was it was um you know, released into the world. And every time you saw that logo, it had this little buzzing bee to the top right of it saying like registered trademark because they couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, I think we see that a lot. So we get a, a kind of combo composite mark and then the brand says, hey, let's condition consumers to to understand like just this really basic representation also indicates that it's a MasterCard product or whatever. So we're working up to being able to use that by itself. So Snickers a couple of years ago did a promo where they had the regular packaging, but they put different words instead of Snickers. So the bars didn't say Snickers at all. They said like hangry or whatever, you know, some cutesy terms that were supposed to reference their ad campaign. Um, and I think what that does is like reinforce consumers recognize our trade dress, like our packaging colors and font and things like that even without the word Snickers. So now if somebody else tries to use something really similar, we can go to court and say, look, we don't even need to have the word Snickers on the packaging for consumers to get this. Sometimes companies let these trademarks die and there's a whole business in reviving them. A, there's a business in reviving them. B, this is coming up now because like the Washington football team changed its name. What are they called? Oh, Commanders. The Commanders. Yeah. So now the question is like, what happens to that trademark? Because not only is it um, not being used and dead, but it's offensive to many people. And and this holds for like the Aunt Jemima trademark and what was it? Uncle Ben's, right? So this is like a whole new issue kind of cropping up now. Do I have that and, right? Yeah. And so like, I guess two questions. Like first is, if I stop using my trademark, then obviously given the whole like use it or lose it thing, it's no longer mine. But then what's the mechanism whereby the legal system works out who gets to have it next? Like, where, And then like, is there a mechanism where the legal system can say, well, actually no one can get it next because it's offensive? Not because it's offensive, but potentially because it still creates a likelihood of confusion with the prior owner, right? So trademark rights in the United States are based on use in commerce. That's how you acquire rights. And when you get a registration, that's just supposed to be kind of a formal recognition of the rights that you get through use. Um, so when somebody stops using a mark for a couple of years and they don't show that it, they have an intent to resume use in the near future, they don't have a specific excuse like we're waiting for this component to be available or there's an embargo with this country or something like that, then that mark is deemed abandoned. They won't have any more rights and somebody else can come along and start using it and seek protection for it, right? So the question about who gets it is really like whoever gets there first. 
But there's a doctrine called residual goodwill that says, like, listen, this mark is famous in this country, and maybe not everybody knows about the abandonment, but everybody knows this mark. And so if you come along and start using it for something that's related but different, um, you're going to be free riding on that goodwill that exists, and you're potentially going to deceive consumers, right? So if Aunt Jemima if that brand announces we're not using this mark anymore because we've come to understand that it's really problematic, and then a week later somebody picks it up and starts using it for maple syrup or some other breakfast food, then we can expect a good amount of consumers to think that it still comes from the old brand, right? But then the question is, who's going to stop them? Because it might not be the USPTO. The USPTO might say, well, nobody else currently has trademark rights, so you can have them. So most of the case law comes from the prior owner suing for infringement based on those rights that come from residual goodwill. But if you're a mark owner who's like, just announced to the world, we are stepping away from this mark, we know it to be harmful, then it feels like kind of um, tricky to enforce those rights. So I think we've seen brands do a couple different things, like the um, Cleveland Indians, they said they weren't going to use Chief Wahoo anymore, um, that mascot based on some harmful stereotypes on the uniforms, but they were kind of low-key still using it for merchandise, right? Um, and Aunt Jemima's, I think, is still using in some other countries or using on the back of the products. And then Uncle Ben's, they changed it to Ben's Original, which is still similar enough that they can probably enforce those rights. So they're kind of, we're seeing some ways that those who are stepping away from a mark are still trying to hang on to some rights. One thing that was interesting to me in doing the reading, catching up from 2005, was the Washington football team name because when I was covering IP, there was a, a lawsuit over the trademark because native, some Native American group said you can't trademark something offensive, which I guess is in the Lanham Act. Um, but when I was reading last night was that that went away because of some other case where they said, oh, yeah, you can actually – trademark things that are offensive. So can you, you can trademark things that are offensive now? Absolutely. So the Lanham Act used to contain a bar on registration of offensive or scandalous or marks that disparage a particular group. And so for a long time, like, you know, the band Butthole Surfers, they didn't have a registration for their <laughs> trademark, even though that's a pretty well-known mark, right? Um, so in, in a pair of cases, the Supreme Court overturned that bar on registration, essentially based on the First Amendment based on the idea that this is speech in addition to being commercial. And um, we can't regulate that speech in these kind of specific ways that we've been doing. That's an anti-cancel culture ruling. I feel like people don't know that. <laughs> this is amazing. This went all the way to the Supreme Court. Like who, which, which mark was being litigated in front of SCOTUS? Yeah, so the first one was The Slants, which is a band made up of Asian-American artists. And they, they chose that mark as kind of a reclaiming of a slur, you know, something that was tongue-in-cheek. So it wasn't about um, a bunch of white people using a mark that is disparaging to uh, a group that has been marginalized. Instead, it was members of that marginalized group trying to take it back. And when they applied to register it, the USPTO said, Mm, we think that is an offensive term. And here's some urban dictionary entries. And here's one time that Miley Cyrus said something offensive. So the band appealed that. They appealed it all the way up and they were able to succeed on this First Amendment-based argument with some strange bedfellows. 
Alexandra Roberts, thank you for coming on this show. This was so much fun. It was I've been looking forward to this for so long and it totally lived up to all expectations. You're a superstar. My pleasure. And yeah, thank you for listening to the Slate Money and we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. That was the Slate Money Podcast. You can find it wherever. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.